back for yet another week of Behind the Lens. I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens, where we go behind the lens and below the line with the movers and shakers, the film and TV makers, the producers, writers, directors, um, oh yeah, those people called actors, production designers, film editors, sound editors, sound mixers, costume designers, composers, and even authors, and so much more. Uh, welcome, welcome. I am back in studio this week. No thanks to Ford Motor Company and their inferior transmission products. Uh, <laughs> but we made do last week. We plowed through. Thank you, Pam, very much. Um, but today we are back in studio, raring to go. And we got a full house today. Joining us shortly is producer Jessica Devaney. Jessica is the founder and president of Multitude Films. It's an L and perfect timing since this is Pride Month, LGBTQ-led production company that tells stories about underrepresented communities. And a, a big film for Multitude, Pray Away, just had its world premiere at Tribeca on Thursday. And... Uh, uh, Multitudes partnered with Ryan Murphy and Blumhouse on that and already has an August Netflix release. So we'll talk a little bit about Pray Away. I haven't seen it yet. Jessica will be back later in the summer before the release of the film to talk exclusively about Pray Away. But of course, we're going to have to mention and congratulate her uh, on a wonderful Tribeca uh, premiere. And then at the midpoint of the show... I cannot wait to talk to this filmmaker, D.W. Thomas, director and editor of the film Too Late. It is a comedy. It is fun and funny. There's a little bit of darkness to it. It has some gorgeous production design and cinematography, rich, lush, really nice production values, and an amazing cast. So... I'm very excited to talk to DW when uh, she calls in at the midpoint of the show. But today is also, it is the first day of summer. Now, if you are watching on the AdrenalineRadio.com Facebook live stream, a modified smaller set dress today, but front and center is TCM's latest book, Summer Movies, 30 Sun-Drenched Classics by John Malahi, forward by Len Malton. Uh, I got to tell you, this is a great book. TCM puts out the, great, the, the greatest books. You've seen me showcase a lot of them here uh, on essential fi 52 Essential Films, which boils down to like one a week, and then more Essential Films. Um, now we've got Summer Movies. And some of the titles in here, we've got Moon Over Miami, State Fair, Key Largo, Seven Year Itch, of course, The Parent Trap, Endless Summer, of course, um, Jaws, Caddyshack, Dirty Dancing, Do the Right Thing, Call Me By Your Name. It is chock full of pictures, commentary. This is, you know, and covers Everything and of course, since you've got uh, we've got the Gidget series in here, it's a really fun book. It gives you some great ideas for summer fun movies. And 
I also brought along a couple summer fun movies to kick off the summer. One, it's a classic. For love of the game, Kevin Costner. Baseball. You know, we're coming up to all-star time. So, you know, that's that's baseball movies are always very appropriate. And there are a ton of them out there. And you can even find a, a true classic, Take Me Out to the Ball Game, uh, a, a musical, which is so much fun. And, of course, what is summer without shark movies? In the Deep, one of my personal favorites. Um, that is available on DVD. I think, I think also digitally you can find it, but it is on DVD. I, I think it's one of the last, eh, maybe in the last year before the fall of Weinstein. Uh, Weinstein distributed that film uh, on DVD, and then it got a theatrical afterwards through another distributor. And then it's a, it's a fun film. And, of course, it's got Eastwood, Scott Eastwood, The Perfect Wave. And, hey, don't feel bad. We also have a Charlie's Angel in, in it. Um, Cheryl Ladd co-stars in the film as well. And it's just a laid-back, finding-yourself summer fun. But with summer upon us, and now it's officially started, let's get rocking and rolling with some summer fun movies. Um we're also hot in Emmy, in the Emmy consideration nominations period right now. And you all know my love for Yellowstone. Well, on Friday, I, on Thursday, I interviewed stunt coordinator Jason Rodriguez. Yes, Emmy Awards are given out for series stunt coordination. And that interview is up and out on all the social media platforms and on BehindTheLensOnline.net. As Jason describes it, old school, down and dirty is how he approaches the stunt work and melding the brains of animals and men safely, creatively, uh, and fuels the story. It's a fun, fun interview. And for me, it was, I just really love talking with Jason because of his old school methods, because that goes back to you know, 40 years ago when I was hanging out with the guys who were there with John Wayne, John Ford, the old Western stuntmen, Al Wyatt, Bill Hart, Bill Catching, Neil Summers. Um, truly, truly, I love, I love that old school down and dirty way of idea of stunts. And that's what Jason brings to Yellowstone. I also did my <clears throat> annual Emmy Emmy uh, conversation with composer Brian Tyler and this year his co-composer for season three of Yellowstone Brett and Vivian joined him and talk about a fun conversation Brian and I always have a great time uh, and this time we talked primarily while we talked about the whole season three uh, of Yellowstone we spent most of the time talking about the first episode of season three, which is the one that Brian and Breton submitted for Emmy consideration. Uh, it's called You're an Indian Now. It's that episode and, of course, one of the key signature musical compositions in that episode really sets the tone for what is going to happen throughout season three. And for anyone that's seen season three, if you go back and you listen to season two, 
first episode of season three and listen to the music. Listen to that subtle scoring and you will definitely see the foreshadowing. Uh, it's a really, com it's complex melodically, uh, that entire episode. So I'm thrilled that uh, the boys have put their names out there again. I hope the Emmy voters consider them this year. Uh, but check out those interviews. They're on behind the, uh, it, they're on Elias Entertainment uh, YouTube channel and also on BehindTheLensOnline.net. So I'm really proud of those interviews and those incredible talented guys. So check them out. And right now we're going we're gonna to switch gears and... A big welcome to Jessica Devaney. Hi, Jessica. Hi. It's great to be here. I am so excited to have you in Pride Month, no less. Thank you. And, of course, huge congratulations on your latest film, Pray Away. Spectacular pre world premiere at Tribeca last week. Mm-hmm. It was really moving just to be with audiences and screen a film with a group of people again we were at Tribeca and then we headed to Doc 10 in DC this weekend or in Chicago this weekend and it was just really movie moving to be back in real life okay now you are the first filmmaker I have spoken to that has been with an audience for their film for the world premiere since the pandemic began last March the lockdowns began mm. you know how exciting was it could you really feel an adrenaline rush um, were the people happy to be back in the theater? I mean, the energy was palpable. The, like, gasps and laughs and, you know, just the reactions and the feeling people kind of brace themselves in their, in their seats during more tender or emotional parts. It was, it was such a good reminder of why, film has been such a communal experience for much of its history and and really getting to experience Pray Away in particular with audiences. It's a really, you know, heavy film that deals that deals with trauma and, you know, many people need to, need an outlet to process that after. Mm -hmm. Well, and you mentioned something really important, uh, communal experience. And, of course, the bombshell just came out this morning that Steven Spielberg's company, Amblin, has signed a deal with Netflix. Uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> as a producer yourself, you know, and Spielberg has been such, a, you know, a combatant and champion of films need to be in the theater, films need to, need to be in the theater. Just do you think, as a producer, is this going to at possibly adversely impact everyone else like yourself championing films to get them in theaters you know we're we're working with netflix to release pray pray away actually mm -hmm. um let me and and they have been such a great partner um i don't necessarily see the digital platforms and screeners screeners as like mutually exclusive to communal experiences you know sometimes there's other ways to be together with audiences beyond the theatrical experience. Mm -hmm. For example, some of our impact campaign work with, with pray away. Um, and I think, you know, we're not, we're not arriving at a new place in the market. We're still figuring out how 
how theatrical experiences and streaming will work together. They won't necessarily work how they're working right now or how they were working a couple of years ago. So I actually see there that, that there's tremendous possibility um, in, in preserving what's special about theatrical experiences alongside the wide reach of streamers. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, there is definitely an audience for both, and there is a need for both. Uh, and, mm-hmm. I, and I think we've really seen that, the way people have clamored. It's like, yeah, it's great watching films at home. Okay, 15 months later, oh, do I have to sit on the couch again and watch a film? I want to go to the mm-hmm. theater. Um, so we definitely, we need that as humans. We need that, and especially, and nothing brings us together more than the movies. So, and... You know, something that you, through, you know, your wonderful company of Multitude Films, um, very unique company, it is LGBTQ-led company, and you devote mm-hmm. yourself to telling stories about underrepresented communities. There aren't too many production companies out there that are doing that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and definitely not doing them as successfully as you are. What prompted you, obviously you saw a need for multitude and you are filling that Mm -hmm. need, but how challenging has it been? What led you, you know, specifically to this focus? You know, my producing partners and I come from an organizing background prior to our filmmaking, so we kind of bring this ethos to the work that we do. And there's a real gap between some of the mentorship and grant funding entities in the business that are meant to be supporting underrepresented voices and marginalized voices and where the market is and who the market deems as risky or niche um, makers and audiences. And that's BIPOC folks, LGBTQ folks, women, people with disabilities, et cetera. And so we see Multitude as like a production pipeline that fills the gap between some of the like mentorship and, and the market itself. Um, and, and it, it is, it is a challenge and, and we're approaching it from a values based model, but also I, I'm excited over time to prove how, responsible authorship and when you have films or stories where the core creative team has a stake in the audiences that will be most impacted by that film um, making decisions around responsible authorship isn't just good values but it's good business too Mm -hmm. you know how long has it taken you to get multitude up and running because you definitely it's like pray away is not the first film coming out of multitude (laughs) you've got a proven track record already but it's a proven track record in a relatively short amount of time from what i can tell you know roughly 2016 17 something like that yeah thank i mean thank you so much we i founded multitude in 2016 and we really had our debut in 2018 where we launched three features at tribeca um you know we we have been under a process of creating a hybrid production company model so that we can keep our values-based and political focus while also, um, while also being 
keeping an eye on sustainability. So we have a kind of unique model that runs on a mix of traditional production company operations and philanthropic support through uh, fiscal sponsorship. So that has been a way that helps us, you know, create the kind of infrastructure of the the bigger production companies in the industry for films that are difficult to resource, need to be resourced independently and are often resourced much slowly. And so typically can't be produced within uh, production houses with infrastructure and support that we offer. Yeah, and this falls right in line. I read your article that you wrote for IDA, the International Documentary Association, Building More Equitable Hybrid Financing Models. Bless you. Bless you. Somebody somebody needs to put this out there for filmmakers so that they understand um, what's needed. And for investors and philanthropists, mm-hmm. um, you know, financing films, it's always a challenge. But you need that multi-pronged approach. Indeed. And particularly if if you're trying to challenge, like, the norms of market. We need to be thinking about financing models that center filmmakers and the creative team and that also center um, responsible authorship and make sure that the creative control is held um, by the folks who should be telling these stories. Mm-hmm. And, that, that's, and that's what, you know, I, that's what told me right away why your partnership on Pray Away with Ryan Murphy and Blumhouse is just that's an idyllic kind of, of partner producing partnership uh, for a film because Jason Blum went out with a with a business model nobody had ever thought of before and look what he turned the, mm. that into with Blumhouse so to see that that brainchild melding with you as a brainchild and throw in Ryan that that's you know that's a perfect triumvirate <laughs> of producing let me tell you. <laughs> Well, I'll take that. Thank you. <laughs> um, they have been wonderful partners and just really saw the vision of the film really swiftly. And we also have a lot of support from the philanthropic community within independent documentary um, like Chicken and Egg, Sundance, Tribeca, Perspective Fund, Catapult Fund, and and others who who saw both the potential of Christine and her first feature and also this story in particular and its urgency. You know, and that begs that begs a question. With Christine as a first-time feature filmmaker with Pray Away, what projects, how do you, do you pursue projects? Do you create projects in-house? And then how do you bring in the creative teams, such as Christine, directing Pray Away? That's a great question. It, it's a variety of ways. We, um, you know, track a lot of emerging filmmakers and projects that they have in development, which is how we came to connect with, with Christine. Um, folks also knew that I had like a personal connection to the issues in Pray Away growing up evangelical and queer in Florida. Um, and one side of our slate, which is really focused on emerging directors, it's often the directors who are developing that story for a couple of years until they come to us. And the other side of our slate, um, we're, we're developing stories, attaching directors, we're working um, with directors to develop and pitch and pre-sale together, and that's with the more established directors. 
Um, but we do really want to hold an anchor of our slate for emerging underrepresented directors and kind of a place um, that can prove that that they aren't risky to bet on and that if you ask the right questions and evaluate in the right ways, you really can set up a first or second time feature for 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 real success um, and and hopefully that will over time make it easier for other underrepresented directors coming in the wake. Well, and and you said something there that that's really interesting, um, you know about that I think applies to you about risk. You know, somebody taking a chance, a risky chance. Who took their first risky chance on you that helped propel you to where you are now with Multitude? Mm, that is, that, I love that question because it gives me a chance to reflect on folks who have really mentored me over time. And I think Daniel Chelfin, who is a very established producer, has has really been um, a, a, like, phone-a-friend mentor, both for, like, the small minutiae of questions that I've had over time and also like a a big champion of of me and multitude in the field from our most fledgling stages. So definitely Daniel Chelson and also through the Sundance um, Women Fellowship in 2016, which was right when I was starting multitude, I was connected with Julie Goldman, who is also an incredibly established producer who really helped me think creatively and strategically about about models, about the gaps and opportunities in the market, what it means to run a production company as a different thing than producing a film and 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 what that kind of infrastructure would look like practically so that I could really iterate what suits Multitude's mission. So those two folks have been um, incredible anchors as well as so many leaders in the documentary industry, especially like institutions like Sundance and Perspective and Chicken and Egg and um, Catapult Film Fund and, and others. Now, do you see yourself more as the steward for Multitude's mission statement or do you want see yourself more as a boots on the ground producer with a project or does it vary? You know, will you? You know, it, at this stage, I'm sorry. Oh no, I, no, go ahead. At this stage, it really varies. Um, I am very boots on the ground and hand on with the projects that I'm lead producing, and and currently we have three producing partners um, who who lead produce different films, and we pair two of us with each film, so the roles are different um, based on that that configuration and i you know as i i see multitude growing i think it will mean that i'll have to take a step back from some of the hands-on producing or or like keep a few creative babies that i'm (laughs) as deeply involved in but really focus on the health of the company and our path forward as a team i i can tell i heard that little catch in your voice about the fact that you might only be able to hold on to some of your babies. Uh, <laughs> that has to be that, that 
I don't, I do not want to be around when that day comes for you, when you have to make that choice of, <laughs> of killing your darlings and handing them over to somebody else. Oh my God, Jessica. You know, what, what is for those, that, for those filmmakers, those, you know, early producers in films, I know quite a few producers that come in on these first time filmmakers or the, and their first time producers, you know, especially with films that are geared towards these underrepresented communities, social issues, um, which often fall more in the documentary arena as opposed to the narrative. But what, what kind of advice would you give to these producers that are just starting out that want to make an impact and work with filmmakers to tell these stories other than come to multitude and let you guys take a look at it. Um, <laughs> you know, we, we've built out our executive producing pr- um, slate in a way that functions somewhat as a, apprenticeship program for emerging producers where we work to equip them, you know, both around business, strategic, creative, logistical questions to to shepherd their films forward, but also thinking through their broader career and what their goals are. You know, not everyone wants to build a company with infrastructure. Um, so, so thinking that through, I think overall the best piece of advice, um, that that was given to me was that um, don't be afraid to share your failures. Um, find a group of trusted colleagues that you can share what's really hard about the work that you're doing because we have to fail a lot for every success that we have in, in this field and um, and coming to terms with that so that each failure doesn't kind of cut your legs off from under you and become debilitating is, is really important. So like whatever you can do to cultivate that resilience through community, you know, at some point early on, I used to keep a tracker of rejections and I would, I would hope to get to a hundred rejections each year. And I was like, if I got a hundred rejections, I, I definitely got some yeses. <laughs> Well, and that's, I, I'm sensing here the, a big important part of it all is you have to have a sense of humor and be able to laugh at yourself too. That, that's a great point, and also surround yourself with people who have that same vibe. Now, do you see it, since you've started Multitude, have you seen a shift in the land in the cinematic landscape with more films coming coming about? Uh, showcasing these underrepresented communities. Yeah, absolutely. I, in the doc space, there's definitely like a much more alive conversation around ac- access, equity, and representation, and that's been really powerful and moving to see. I think in the industry at large, also in the wake of the George Floyd protest last summer, um, we saw these conversations coming to a fore, like we've seen them come at different times around Oscars So White, for example, and other campaigns. Um, However, progress tends to 
be cyclical or ebb and flow in a way that we make these political gains and then there's backlash or even just um, people getting in their comfort zones again and not pushing boundaries forward. And so we make some progress and we lose that progress. And so it really requires some vigilance to preserve progress that we've made, but also not accept those breadcrumbs as enough. Mm -hmm. What is your end game uh, for Multitude? Do you have a goal for how many films you'd like to be putting out each year, um, expanding uh, the mission statement, maybe on an international level? I'm I'm really curious about that because you've done so much already. Hmm. You know, I think it's important for us to remain nimble and open to um, how the landscape is changing. Uh, We are expanding to more international films right now and have a couple in different stages. Um, At the same time, I want us to grow at a pace where if any director or distributor or financier or VP is working with multitude, whoever is, are the key people they're interacting on our team, that they're having a really consistent experience in terms of the environment, the ethos, the sense of respect, the commitment to excellence and artistry and all of those things. And so we need to grow responsibly so that we don't find ourselves in the position of like, being like a factory farm of films, you know? Mm-hmm. You know, and, and I love what you're saying. And I, I'm, in my 35 plus years as a critic and doing interviews and even working in production, I have not heard anyone really speak that eloquently from the heart as to what they want. Um, I get a lot of, well, we want to grow and we want to get bigger. And you're more concerned about the personal level the personal level of Mm -hmm. your films, the personal level of the company. uh, And that I find amazing. And I commend you on that. Thank you. That means so much, especially given your, your, your view, your wide view on everything. You know, I'm curious, Jessica, what, what does this, what does multitude production and focusing on the mission statement, what, does that give you what does it what makes you go forward what about it makes you get up in the morning and put one foot in front of the other and start all over again it's really all the people that we work with my core team at multitude um the directors that we work with the crew that we work with industry partners who share the same values um, that feeling of sort of solidarity and allyship across communities, um, whether we're talking about our queer doc cohort or um, or filmmakers with disabilities cohort or brown brown girls doc mafia or others, um, it's it's that feeling of kind of being in it together um, that gets me out of bed. Well, I'm so glad it does, and I can't wait. Karen told me I have to wait to see Pray Away, and <laughs> then I get to have you back on the show again. Um, time to uh-huh. the, time to the film's release. So I'm I'm that ve- would be amazing. I'm very excited about that. Oh, Jessica. Well, unfortunately, I have to let you go, 
and bring on a female director. Um, it's a very female-centric day today. Um, Amazing. <laughs> I, try, I try and package, do things like that. So, um, ironically, it's a client of Karen's, too. Isn't that funny? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I love it. She does. It. She does support the female the female uh, filmmakers out there. She but, does. She's uh, fantastic. Jessica, thank you so much. This has been a joy, and I can't thank wait. Thank you so much. I can't wait to talk to you again about Pray Away later in the summer. Same thing. Thank you. Take care. Thanks, bye Jessica. Bye bye. And that was Jessica Devaney, producer, founder of Multitude Films. And she will be back later in the summer with her latest film, Pray Away, that just had its, it, which will be on Netflix. And uh, it's still on the, essentially the fest circuit. But right now, oh, we are switching gears with so much joy here. Welcome, D.W. Thomas. Hi. Hello. Debbie, well, thanks for having me. Can you <laughs> hear me okay? I can hear you. Can you hear me okay? Yes, I can. Well, I just have to say, I had so much fun watching Too Late. Um, oh, I'm so excited. I can't wait for everyone to get to see this film Friday when it releases. Oh, my God. It is, it's fun. It's funny. There's some adorable stuff here. Your production values are fantastic. Absolutely. Oh my gosh, thank you so much for saying that. That's oh. terrific. As I watch the film, I've watched it twice now. I watched it again last night at, well, earlier today at midnight. I watched it again. <laughs> it's the perfect film to watch at midnight. Come on. Uh, <laughs> I, I agree. <laughs> I had so much fun with Too Late. Um, I can't tell you. Uh, I can't just... Oh just a joy you know tell the tell our listeners how what how would you describe that without spoilers which is kind of tough mm -hmm. when we get to a certain point in the film uh, <laughs> how would you describe what too late is about well too late sorry no i'm here go ahead okay too late too late is about a lonely assistant who finally finds I, I'm kind of getting I'm breaking up here let me let me move to another room okay all right so too late is about a lonely assistant who finally finds love and must escape from her monster of a boss before they become his next meal now I guess that's the log line it is it is a uh, takes place in the stand-up comedy scene in Los Angeles, and it follows Violet Fields, who works with Bob Devore, who is a known uh, host of a of a variety show, and he's he's uh, a lot more than we see on the surface. So he is a, a monster. I don't think we can that, that gives away any spoilers. And they have a really interesting dynamic between the two of them. And it's about her finding her voice and escaping from, from her overpowering boss. And maybe finding love in the meantime. And maybe finding love, yes. So, I mean, this is, this is the full package here. 
you know, we've got we've got <laughs> boy wants girl, girl wants boy, girl screws it up, boy walks away, boss is a jerk, personal assistant run, works 24-7, no gratification, hates her boss. You know, we could have some... Exactly. Back- we're, we're calling it a horomcom. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Uh, I mean, this is your cat. Let, let me start with your casting. I have to tell you, Alyssa Lynn Paris, who plays Violet, our ever suffering personal, uh, you know, assistant. So, you know, when personal publicists out there complain, I hear them complain a lot about demanding clients or, oh my God, you know, my phone was ringing at 11 o'clock. Folks, you got nothing on poor Violet. Let me just tell you, you got nothing on poor Violet. Uh, <laughs> Alyssa is gold. She, her delivery, her timber, her cadence, um, the attitude that she brings with everything she says is perfection in this film. Uh, I, I just, her performance is fabulous. Then you Pair her with a BFF roommate, uh, played by Jenny Zagrino, who is just, she's hilarious. Everybody in this film is hilarious. And, you know, then you get the, the boyfriend, Will Weldon, who is the all-American boy. You talk about the girl next door. He's the all-American boy next door. And, you know, he's just got a joke for everything, but he plays it so well. And then you get into Fred Armisen. I have never seen Fred Armisen this adorable. As as Fredo, the the lighting stage guy. I have never seen Fred Armisen this adorable in anything. And I loved it. I loved it. And you get Jack DeSena and you get Marilyn Rajkub. And of course, Ron Lynch as Bob DeVore. And he just commands the screen. And this is really you get all these great performances from these people. And then when you get Bob DeVore, this is where Scott, your cinematographer, Scott Toller Collins, really starts to shine. Just starts to shine. Because he shines in so many areas with this film, with the lighting and lensing. But his, he uses a lot of dutching. The two of you use a lot of dutching when you're filming Bob so that you constantly give us that metaphoric um, visual of power over everyone around him. And it just, it's delicious to watch. And then you see everything that you and Scott have put together, your visual tonal bandwidth, with your color, with your texture, um, celebrating Sam Slosberg's production design. It is outstanding. It is vi- this whole film is visually and comedically delicious. Wow, thank you so much for saying all that. You that's great. <laughs> you know, where do you as a director sc- written by Tom Becker, how did this story co- find its way to you? Well, me and my husband Tom, we wanted to make a movie that we could potentially shoot on our own. And um, pulled together people that Tom knew from stand-up comedy and that we both love. And so we first started with Ron Lynch, who uh, has been on the scene for forever. Yeah. And he has a late-night variety show. So we sort of were like, oh, we'll use, we'll use that late-night variety show. And we'll start sort of 
making the story around it. And it, and then we, we went to Ron and we said, Ron, we have this script. Will you read it? We want you to be the lead and let us know what you think. And Ron loved it. And so after that, it started to come together and we were able to find investors through friends and family. And we, uh, we started pulling the creative team together. Um, so, and, and Ron also was like, Oh, I bet, I bet I know some people that might be willing to do smaller parts. And he sent it to Fred Armisen and to Maryland rice cub. And they, they both loved the script. And so they both jumped on and boy, it, it, it was amazing how it just sort of came together. And, uh, no, I mean it. It's just, but you know, now did you start? Was it all? It was always the intent for you to direct, correct? That's right. Yeah. So you know, were you looking over Tom's shoulder as he's writing, um, and coming up with visual images uh, early on, or did you wait till he finished the whole thing, and then decided to sit down and visualize how you could bring this to life? Well, what we do when we write scripts together is we first break the story. So we, we took the whole story with every scene, every set piece, and we broke it down on cards. We figured out the arc and the characters and did all that stuff together. So when he could go and take it and write the script, then we would know we would be going in the right, right direction. So it's, it's a much faster way of of coming up with a script for the, the you know, and I, I'd be really excited to direct. And then I have my voice in it along the way. And so he, he took that um, breakdown and, and, and wrote the screenplay. And his process um, usually takes between ooh, three to five weeks or so. And then we sort of go back and forth and, and rewrite it and uh, figure it out from there. You know, the visuals in here are when we're in Bob's room or Bob's house, whatever we're going to call it. That is so rich and so textured. And there's so much in there that it has this, a very timeless quality that covers decades, centuries of time of, of little things. When you look at little tchotchkes and, and, you know, things on a dresser or or on a buffet and, and over on the wall. And then this beautiful, really ugly plywood box that has torn <laughs> velvet lining to it uh, and looks like it came over on the Mayflower or something, um, you know, is sitting in the room. But everything has this earthy feel. You really, with your with Sam's work and then Scott's camera, the lighting and the lensing, using the reds and those dark wood tones, everything in that room pops. It's it's incredible. Yes, it was so fun filming that too. And actually, a lot of those tchotchkes come from my my family, from uh, my uh, Quaker upbringing way back in. Pennsylvania from the 1800s and all the, all sorts of stuff that, you know, I, I, I dug through my parents' garage and, and put that in there. So that's, that's a fun little nod, nod to that. But I, I, we wanted to have that idea that we didn't really know how old Bob was, but he, he collected stuff throughout his life. And so 
adding that texture was was a big part of it and sam sam did such a an amazing job pulling it all together and like you said scott did a great job lighting it to really pull you into bob's world and also it's very low lighting and so Mm -hmm. if if there was too much light you would see the the blood spots and the kind of really dingy stuff like oh what's going on in here (laughs) at night (laughs) you know what's his real story but but yeah, because and even with the uh, with the ambient light, with the table lamps, um, the table lamps are fabulous because you've got like a Tiffany go- happening, so you're getting that yellow gold, that golden glow through the glass uh, mm-hmm. with your table lamps, which cast with the reds creates a whole different texture that almost gives you a sense of negative space by the time you get to the edges of the room. Uh, And, of course, you've got the beautiful French doors opening out to an inky blue-black night, which is a gorgeous Mm -hmm. contrast. But And I'm a big fan of cinematographers who can pull off a really pretty blue, inky blue-black for night. And, boy, Scott really does it here. Yeah, he did a great job, and we also um, did our color correction with Light Iron, Ethan Schwartz, and he, he, like, pulled out those colors even more and did a terrific job with his color correction. And what's, what is really interesting is I love the contrast that you have because everything about Bob is so lived in. You know, obviously, you know, we, we're figuring Bob's older than dirt, uh, but everything about him, it's rich, it's textured, it's lived in. Um, there are layers, you know, the suit jacket, the tie, there's layers to his clothes. And then you look at the, at the set for his show, Too Late, and it's very stark. It's very empty. And then we look at the coffee shop where poor Violet tries to run her own little live comedy show. And it's very, it's light, it's brighter, it's kind of like a sickly kind of yellow tone to it. Um because it's not really what she wants to do. So you create some great visual metaphor through the lighting. Um, but the contrast between the richness and then the, you know, metal chairs and tiny tables in this little little coffee shop with one case of, of food, uh, of pastries or something, it's really interesting because it suits the personalities. You know, poor Violet, she's struggling. She wants that break. She wants to be on that main stage of Too Late. And no matter what she does, Bob's just grinding her down. Um, exactly. So to see the, the emptiness of and the startup nature of what she's trying to do compared to the richness of his own world, it's fabulous. It really... Oh, I love it. Yeah. It's... it's it, it, I love... Uh, it's gorgeous. Yeah. I'm so happy you saw that because you're right. Like we, we did spend a lot of time coming up with that color palette and figuring out what, because that orange red sort of sickly color in Bob's world, it, it kind of makes you uneasy. And it's yeah. sort of, you know, it, and it's also he wears a lot of clothing that's a little dated. Like he's, he's not up with the times because he can't, he can't, com- you know, completely overhaul his uh, look every, every fashionable, you know, style that comes around and so I love that he kind of just he doesn't really care that much anymore he's just making do with his looks but then you have his 
stage presence where he has a completely different outward persona mm-hmm. for, for the audience. And, you know, he's, he's Bob um, of too late. And you're right with, with Violet, Violet's life. She's also kind of trying to, to become more. And she thinks what Bob has is better and that'll, that'll make everything work. And, and so she does what she has to do in order to appease Bob. But yeah, but it's not always as easy as that without giving anything away. Yeah, no, it it gets very tricky and very difficult. And of course, then when we've got the moments of Will's character of Jimmy and Violet, when we get the two of them, be it out on the street or out on a date, a totally different, more natural lighting and feel. It's very soft. It's very comfortable. Um, it's very present. And it's almost like it's that, that part. It's almost like a blanket. You know, mm-hmm. just sheltering the two of them. I mean, the the lighting that you and Scott have, have designed to create this metaphoric storytelling is really beautiful. A lot of thought went into that. Thank you for saying that. You know, now you're also editor on this film. You're using your years of editing experience and you're your own That's editor. Right, yeah. So, you know, how often were you wearing your editor's hat while you were directing? Um, was All your, the time. Was this beneficial to directing? Was this saving you time? Or was it infuriating yourself when you finally did get into editing and say, God, I wish I had got done that? You know, you sort of nailed it. It, it was all of all of the above. I think it was such a short shoot. It was 15 days. So we really only had wow. like a few takes for each scene. And so it was like once once I knew I had it, I moved on and we had to keep moving on. And yeah. I think part of me wish I, I wish that I did have a little more for certain scenes, but we just had to we had to get it. And so uh we had to be creative with how we set it up to make sure we could get the most out of a scene. And gosh, you know, I'm, I'm just so impressed with how, what, how we ended up capturing as much as we did and having, having a lot to work with in the edit room, you know, and we also had all these talented actors who, um, you know, have, have a comedy background, have a stand-up mm-hmm. background. And so we, we had improv and we had, uh, the the stand-up comedians all did their own sets, and so it was also kind of playing with that almost a documentary style of editing, which which was fun as well. So yeah, so as an editor, I definitely brought a lot of that to to when I was directing. Well, and I have to, say, I love the comedy bits. I love the fact you actually have the the comics there, and they're doing their own bits. Because some of them are just so funny. So funny. Yeah, they, we were really lucky. Yeah. You know, and, they, and the themes of their stand-up really fit with the theme of the film on so many levels. Um, yeah, some of the stand-up is really dark, and it, it sort of <laughs> feels, it feels like the world that we're trying to create. Yes. And, I, and that was really important to me. So now, what was the learning curve like for you as a director? You had done shorts before. This is your first feature. What kind of learning, and, you know, you've got your editorial experience behind you. 
But then you step there and look, you're running the ball of wax. It's all yours. You know, what was that learning curve like? Oh, gosh, I, I loved I loved it. Like I, I really felt in there and I, and I, I enjoyed uh, working with everybody and the collaborators and being the boss, like telling people <laughs> what I needed to have happen and having them do it. It was actually a lot of fun. And in a way it was more fun than editing because I actually had control over like getting, <laughs> getting the scenes that I wanted. And, and I knew I'd be like, Oh, cause when you're an editor, you sort of deal with whatever comes to you and you mm-hmm. can't, Go like you know what it just really would have been better if you shot it from this angle. So as director, it's like oh now you get to be that person. You get to be the person that actually gets everything that you're as an editor will want. So I I really loved it. It 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 felt so natural and maybe maybe the biggest thing was like articulating everything I wanted visually mm-hmm. because as an editor you kind of take it and then you know how to shape it right. and as a director it's more of uh articulating your visuals and really figuring out the look instead of it just coming to you as an editor so that was probably the biggest uh learning curve well a big question is you know how precious was tom with the words on the page uh you know did he let people play with his words and ad lib as comics are known to do Tom, he definitely uh, spent a lot of time crafting the screenplay. And so we tried to keep them to the line, but we let them button it. We let them improv towards the end in the beginning. Mm-hmm. I think that always works the best. So we know we have the lines mm-hmm. um, and then we can shape the story around that. It, it Sometimes we had to kill our darlings sometimes improv would be really funny but it didn't lead to the the momentum of the story so we really wanted to make sure we kept the momentum but with you know we had such talented actors jenny and Alyssa and will it it was definitely it was fun and they were they were so good at at reading the lines and then like i said buttoning buttoning it with their jokes yeah we used a lot of the improv well, you know, a big question for me, because I'm, I'm a big admirer of this man's work as it is, Michael Hurwitz, your, your composer. Yes. I love so many of the motifs and scores he does on all these Hallmark movies. The Christmas House, The Christmas Bow. Um, I know his work. So, <laughs> so hearing it here in Too Late, it is so whimsical, but it's whimsical with a very dark note to it. It's whimsy played in the more baritone and bass range as opposed to your lighter Hallmark fare. Uh, but it's still, there's a lilt to it, and it's fun. This And it just buttresses everything that says fun about this film. What le- yes, and he was so, yeah. Yeah, what led you to Michael, and what were your conversations with him like in coming up with this particular score? We found Michael on LinkedIn, and we sent him just, it was, you know, we, we didn't think that we would be able to get someone like Michael. Um, but we sent him a message, and we said, hey, we made this little film and we're looking for composers. I don't know if you could recommend anybody. I think it might be not quite in your level, but 
Um, that would be great. And so he wrote back and he was like, this sounds like so much fun. Can I throw my hat in? And we were like, uh, yes, you're hired (laughs) because he's so talented. And we were like, oh my God, this is great. So when we started talking about it, uh, we wanted to keep that, that mix between horror and comedy Mm -hmm. and really tie it together with music because it, it would be up to him to kind of keep it light and keep it fun and the momentum and also feel disjointed and quirky and give us a feel of who Bob could be and all these different motifs. And he, he really came up with something special. And from, from like the minute he started sending us stuff, we were like, ah, yes. Like this feels like too late. This feels like the world of too late. And, and we were doing it all um, through zoom and through a remote because of, because of the pandemic. And so, you know, we were really, put a lot of uh, of the creativity into his hands and let him kind of really play. And I think he, he, he blossomed and he really shined. <laughs> now, did you film during the pandemic or did you get some filming done before everybody went in lockdown? How did that work for you? Yeah, we, we luckily had all the filming done before the pandemic. We did do all the ADR uh, in March right when they started closing down everything. So we got all of the actors in right before they closed down. Wow. And then what we did, yeah, we did the color correction and we did the sound design with Garrett Watley, who did an amazing oh. sound design for us during the, the pandemic. So, um, and then all of the score was done during the camp- pandemic. Wow. Wow. So now that you have made it through directing your first narrative feature film, you know, what what did you learn about yourself as a filmmaker that you can now take forward into future films that you direct and which you better be directing because you are a talented director? Um, but what did oh. you learn that you'll take forward and implement in the future? So much. I think, um, let's see, I... Now, now put on the spot. I, I think doing more storyboard and really playing with uh, more visual effects and kind of, I mean, really, I, I learned that you can do a lot with very little, that you can wear a lot of hats and you can really make something creative and of your own vision. And what I would love to take further with me for the next one is is have a bigger budget and be able not to wear as many hats so I can really focus on the directing and focus on the um you know the things that that can really push it into into another level because this is a low budget and so I guess that's the biggest thing is um learning how to do it at this level and knowing how to do it at this level and then wanting to expand and make it even bigger well, you turned out one heck of a film. I got to tell you, it is so much fun. And also, hats off to your prosthetics team because. Mo Meinhardt, she's oh, amazing. The prosthetics are fabulous. And, you know, this is a film you could have gone heavy with visual effects, very heavy with prosthetics, and you don't. It's tempered back. Granted, we are low budget, 
But still, there are directors, and you know that you could very easily have done this as well and applied more money in a certain area and pushed it. But that's not what this really called for. So the subtlety, the minimal use of these very cool prosthetics um, works so beautifully. And I think they look spectacular. They were great. I agree, yeah. We we wanted to keep it um, more in the imagination and subtle and but still a lot of fun and gruesome and you know they they were so and they were so well done and gosh Mo Meinhardt she did so much with with so little and made it look so real and that was the biggest part we wanted it to sort of maintain a, a reality. Oh, absolutely, and I have to say for. Everybody that sees this film, you have to stay through the credits. Do not get do not get up when the credits start. You must stay through the credits and watch it because it there there's more fun to be had watching the credits. Um, and I have to say those those the postcard etchings and things that you have in there are just they just. It's icing on the cake at that point. Yeah, they were so much fun to make too. <laughs> oh my god! They and did you and I have? To, did you actually have costumes done for Ron for all of that, or was it all just just drawn out? Because I could, it's it's Photoshop magic. Yeah, because I could so see him getting into any one of you know any and all of the Definitely. outfits. Oh, oh, well. Unfortunately, we are all out of time for the entire show. This has been such a joy having you on today, DW. And, oh, my God, I can't wait to see what you do next. Thank you so much, and thank you so much for having me on and talking to me. Oh, any time. But, yes, Too Late opens this Friday, and everybody should see it because they'll have it's summer. You want summer fun? This is fun. Yes, get out to the theaters. That's right. It'll be in select theaters, um, and you can find out on our website at TooLateTheMovie.com. And uh, and it's a fun website. I was on there looking. So, uh, DW, thank you so much, and I hope I talk to you again soon. Me too. Thanks so much, Debbie. Bye-bye. Bye. And that was DW Thomas, director and editor of Too Late. Select theaters and elsewhere. On Friday, June 25th, you won't be sorry. You will thoroughly enjoy this film and have fun, which now that it's summer, you're supposed to do. That is all the time we have today. Um, We'll be back next week. Who do we have next week? Ah, next week we have the filmmakers of Bad Detectives. So that should be interesting. So until then, happy summer. I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens.